This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I tripped into thorn bushes and I fell downstairs. I knocked over milk glasses at the dinner table and experienced smashing accidents on my bicycle. But Nancy, my best friend from elementary school, was the opposite. Where I was unwieldy and weird, she was agile and athletic. She was gangly limbs and gap teeth. I was freckles and baby fat. But we were inseparable. So when the Howard Beach Queens Parks Department installed monkey bars and a swing set in the swath of concrete outside Public School 203, one of those intimidating geometric abstractions that looked like a medieval torture instrument, Nancy was the first in our third grade class to ascend the full length of its horizontal peak. Though I'd already acquired a reputation for being clumsy in class, Nancy naturally wanted me to try it, too. She was determined for us to do everything together. I happily obliged, if only to avoid letting her down. I also thought that somehow, if I managed to do this successfully, I could rectify my reputation and seal myself a gleaming new history in the minds of my classmates. As the rest of the class looked on in animated horror, I slowly traversed the bars, my hand testing each length of metal pipe before I pulled myself across another notch. Underfoot, there was nothing more than a square-cut industrial carpet, and far beyond that, an island of concrete. Once all the way over, sweat pouring from my brow, I steadied myself on the crossbar, victorious, as if I was the one who ordered the rise and fall of the sun and moon and expected birds of a gentle feather to nestle upon my shoulder. I waved at everyone else to tell them that it was okay, using both hands, and with nothing to maintain my balance, I fell through the gap in the bars, tearing my favorite Brady Bunch t-shirt and receiving a whopping black and blue smear marking my bum, both for my bravery and my vanity. Yes, I was humiliated, and yes, my reputation as a klutz was cemented thereafter, but this minor glitch in a life already brimming with glitches eventually led me to a revelation. The fact that I fell off the monkey bars was funny. People laughed when I told it, and it made for a better story. I often think of this as I face a blank screen sitting down to write. For the blank screen, which has surpassed the blank page for many writers in this new century, is one of the great literary terrors. The very challenge of writing is one of the reasons that I love writing. It grants me the opportunity to try and create order out of a disordered universe. Word by word, a string of narrative cohesion emerges from my slow labors, and when it all comes together to my satisfaction, I derive a pleasure unsurpassed by any other endeavor. 
I write to discover what I know about the world and about myself, and the more I fill the screen, the more I realize that life is far less than ordinary and endowed with all the more magic for it. Unfortunately, in a literary life, this is a magic that often proves elusive. A good writer once told me his philosophy of writing. He described it as a marriage, one that required monogamy and an abiding love. You didn't have to bring it flowers every day, he said, but you did have to pay very close attention to it, because if you didn't, it could easily betray you. If you were unfaithful or lagging, it would break your heart into a million pieces, take your car and your house and your indoor swimming pool, and leave you with a long sob story for your AA meeting. Of course, I laughed, but I knew exactly what he meant. A writer has to be disciplined and rigorous. Is there any other way to unearth the buried secrets of the human condition? To discover new worlds through a spattering of words? Consider the genius of a writer like James Joyce who, to quote Shakespeare, with witchcraft of his wit and traitorous gifts, proceeded to map out the inner lives of two mere mortals, Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom, and by following their day-long journey, thus managed to encapsulate for our enlightenment universal beauties and truths. The sheer virtuosity of Joyce's language, of imagination, moved me to sensuous swoons. Along with other favorite writers, such as Wolfe and Dostoevsky, Joyce sweeps me off my feet as if he were a ballroom magician. Reading great writing is akin to a collision of spheres into a cataclysmic revelation magnificent enough to spew into the wide reaches of the universe the very origination of things, the very soul of creation. It mirrors our own experiences, describing our daily hurts and our daily joys, and it is this art that has swept the world stage for more than five centuries with Gutenberg's invention of movable type. And how appropriate this is, for we are creatures who desire to be moved, to experience profound emotions, and it is the lucky reader, indeed, who seeks to be swept off their feet. For when a writer is smitten by the rude muse, what music they provoke from their nervy fingers, sound enough to ripple across space and time, sound enough to browbeat away all calamity and misfortune, a powerful gravitational force that pulls you into the writer's world, because this is the music that is more fortunate than heaven. One day, I hope that I am lucky enough to find that particular plot of cloud hovering in the fly paths and resounding with the music of the spheres. But until then, I'll have to make do with walking into glass doors, banging into hard-edged furniture, and tripping over my own two feet. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Alice Twemlow. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Alice Twemlow is a design writer and educator. She contributes to publications including I, ID, Print, and New York Magazine, and her essays are included in books such as Elsewhere, Mapping, and Looking Closer 5. She's the author of What is Graphic Design For? Alice teaches critical thinking to MFA students at the School of Visual Arts and the Rhode Island School of Design, and she is the chair of a new MFA in design criticism at the School of Visual Arts scheduled to open in 2008. Alice has also directed and co-directed several design conferences, including VOICE, AIGA National Conference 2002, and Looking Closer, 
AIGA Conference on Design, History, and Criticism in 2004. Welcome, Alice. Well, thank you. It's so wonderful to have you here. It's fun to be here, too. I'm very, very excited about talking to you about your new MFA program. I'm looking at a beautiful card Mm -hmm. announcing the MFA program in design criticism from the School of Visual Arts. So tell us how this came to be. Um, Well, as you can imagine, it was an incredibly exciting moment when Steve Heller gave me a call and asked if I'd like to chair a program on design criticism. In fact, I think I probably fell off my chair at that moment. (laughs) Um, It's a fusion for me of so many interests, um, education and writing um, and, of course, design. And so, uh, you know, it's a remarkable opportunity. The program, uh, as you mentioned, is scheduled to open in the fall 2008. In the meantime, I've got this this wonderful period of time to actually build it. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing at the moment is um, writing courses, uh, contacting potential faculty, and really thinking about the culture that we want to grow as part of this graduate program. So it's a wonderful time for me. Now, when you say culture, tell us about the type of culture you're hoping for. Um, Well, it's interesting because there isn't a program like this at the moment. So this is the first of its kind. In the U.S., certainly, it's the only one I know about. So we're starting from scratch here. I'd like to see uh, students coming here from a design background, some of them, and the other ones, I think, will be coming from backgrounds in journalism and writing, perhaps art history. Um, They're people really like I used to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, I came from an English literature background um, and was casting around once I graduated to find something that would allow me to discuss design. I didn't know such a thing as design writing existed at that point. I found an amazing design history MA program in London at the Royal College of Art and the V&A Museum, which was amazing. Um, But it was a while before I could actually apply those tools that I learned there to contemporary design. And, and that's what I want to do here with this program. Um, so it's giving, it's giving students a real head start um, on learning these intellectual tools for, for dealing with design. Now, as somebody who also has an English literary <laughs> degree, uh, a degree that I think profoundly prepares you for the, a professional life, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm being ironic. <laughs> yes. Um, what attracted you first to writing about design? Well, I grew up in a design-conscious family. In what um, way? My mum was an interior designer. And my dad teaches graphic design. Um, so that's the, the scenario in which I grew up. Most kids, I think, rebel against their parents by telling them they're going off to art college. That wasn't an option for me because that was the norm. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they met at Central St. Martin's School in London in the 60s. So. Wow. So, um, so for me, the, the big rebellion was to go to university <laughs> and study um, English li- literature. That was what was different. I came on a long sort of journey back to design through um, editing the university magazine and realizing that I was actually more interested in the design of it and the way it looked mm. than the content in a certain point. I can relate to that. I shouldn't say more, actually. Uh, equally uh-huh. <laughs> interested. And, um, and that's what made me start to look around to see if there was a way to, to join um, my interest in writing and my, my passion for, or growing passion at that point for, for designed objects and environments. Now, your father taught graphic design or still teaches graphic design? He still does on a part-time basis, yeah. So what made you decide to study English literature as opposed to going into graphic design, especially if that was sort of the norm in your family? 
Well, just like I say, I mean, Bolshe sort of adolescent rebellion more than anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to rebel by going against the English literature. Well, that was, that's what's so ironic. Uh, <laughs> but that's what you have to do the opposite, and that's what the situation was. <laughs> and so was there some... Was there some event that occurred in your life that led you more towards design than, say, fine art or any other type of uh, artistic discipline? It's interesting. I haven't considered if there was any kind of particular epiphany uh, in that respect. I think, as I said, because it surrounded me uh, right. all through my life, um, I think... I think some defining moments were, for example, my dad used to take me along to the degree shows at the Royal College of Art when I was very young. And I remember looking through the graphic designers' um, sort of scrapbooks and sketchbooks and, and thinking that these were the most remarkable objects I'd ever encountered. And I started making them myself from that moment onwards, you know. So some things like that probably contributed towards it. Um, and I've always had passion for art too. I'm very, very interested. But it was... Design, I sort of gradually bega began to understand that design is something that touches the lives of everyone and art perhaps a, you know, a lesser number of people. And I'm really interested in, in the power of design as a kind of democratic force. So. Well, Alice, I want to talk to you about design <laughs> as a democratic force when we come back from our break. Um, I think that's a topic that will prove to be quite provocative. Um, in the meantime, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is design critic, educator, and author, Alice Twemlow. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four oh ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. It has been said that to live is to choose, but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go, and why you want to get there. On Reap What You Sow, with host, performance management specialist, and executive coach, Alana Daly, achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious, and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan, and it shall be. Success over and over again, and wealth result when you Reap regularly. Reap what you sow with Alana Daly. Broadcast each Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Reap what you sow. Learn the rules of the game. Then play better than anyone else. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow, the CEO and founder of Resonate, a design agency that develops the media identity for clients across a broad range of platforms. Paul, tell us how you begin the process of creating a brand for a client. We create a language that bears the brand of that company. To do that, we will take keywords of a brand attribute, smart, illuminate, and make that into to an icon. And so our job is to provide, quickly define that language. And it's a little bit like sculpting. You got a block and somewhere in there is that person. And you carve that person out through this process. And the faster you can get to that, the more efficient you are and the more time you save that customer in getting to market. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Paul Sidlow talks about creating imaginary worlds. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back 
with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.17 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is design critic, educator, and author, Alice Twemlow. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Alice, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Alice, before the break, we were talking about design as a force, um, a cultural force, and, and one of the things that I read in your book, What is Graphic Design For?, is a, a wonderful quote of graphic design. It's one of the best definitions of graphic design, I think, that I've come across. It's simple and it's straightforward, and you write, graphic design is a type of language used for communicating. You then add, you use it to tell someone about something that they want or that you think they want or that someone else thinks they want. And I wanted to know if you thought that there was a hierarchy in these levels of communication. Do you think that some are better than others, for example? Well, I actually used that quote as a setup for what I think is probably gets closer to the heart of what I think graphic design is, actually. Um, for me, I think people tend to focus too much on graphic design as being um, an activity of problem solving, of making the complex clear. And obviously that's a very important part of it. And I think I use the example in, in there of, you know, obvious things like stop signs. and Right. We, we need to be clear then. But I think graphic design has this other fun function, and this is the one I'm particularly interested in and where I think a, a critic and criticism meets design in an interesting place. And that's the role of actually making things more complex, in what way? Um, introducing narrative, introducing questions, introducing politics, introducing the uh, ideas of, of the designer themselves into, into the mix. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is not possible in, in all forms of graphic design. Yeah, it, well, it would be hard for a stop sign exactly. or a, a bottle of water, although maybe well, not. Well, you could. You could have a nice little narrative going on the inside label of a bottle of water, perhaps. But... But where, where it's possible, um, I think that's, that's the things that really, really interest me, is when, when people are allowed, allowed to go like that. Now, Stefan Bucher, in, in your book, in answering the question, what is graphic design for, he had two wonderful illustrations side by side, and uh, was answering the question, what is designed for, and on one side, on the left side, it was about uh, some of the uh, answers to the question were things like safety, identifying purpose, mm -hmm. building brand equity. Yeah. On the other side, it said, better answers, delight, mm -hmm. humor, desire, and style. And I was wondering if there was a sense, either from you or from him or in general, of, one, of this being one versus another, and one being better, graphic design is better to be able to do this, for example, identify purpose, versus delight, humor, or create desire and style? If mm -hmm. there was a sense of these just being different ways of communicating or one being better than the other? I, I think they're different rather than, you know, I don't think you can put them in a hierarchy like that necessarily. I've said that I'm more interested in the cases where designers have more room to explore mm -hmm. ideas, um, certainly just because w when you're embarking on writing about something, um, you, you want to be adding something to this rather than merely describing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I think that that's why maybe in terms personally I lean towards that that kind of design. 
Uh, I think probably Stefan was, was showing that there's, there's room for both mm-hmm. in that particular instance. Um, also in the book, I, I talked a little bit about how different eras are characterized by, yes. by different emphasis. So, for example, at certain times, perhaps during war or times of um, economic crisis, design's purpose gets newly sharpened yes. and honed, and then it all makes sense. You know. But at other times, the, there's, there's more room perhaps for more poetic or ambiguous explorations of things. It's really interesting, the idea that times of difficulty, cultural difficulty, mm-hmm. often bring out a lot more political messages. I mean, that's I think, makes sense. I, I was talking to Steve Heller about this, actually, two weeks ago, when um, I was describing uh, seeing Mirko Elix speak at a conference recently, and he challenged the audience because he was wondering where our generation's Guernica was. Mm. And some of the responses from the audience is that this is a culture that does not um, in any way encourage that kind of discussion or mm-hmm. that kind of dialogue. And I was wondering if you had, had, had any thoughts on that. Well, it's strange, really. I mean, Isn't con- it? considering, I don't know how much more of a crisis people want or are waiting for to get going. I mean, this is an incredibly... Um, you know, awful period of time right now. So um, it is strange that there's not that kind of um, work coming out, you know, regularly from the design community. Um, perhaps it's just something to do with the scale of those things that mm-hmm. they don't, mm. um, you know, the public doesn't seem to coalesce around issues in these in these sort of grand co- collectives mm-hmm. so much anymore. Everything seems so much more fragmented. But I think this kind of activity is going on. And you know, all over the place, but on a more local level, mm-hmm. through smaller organisations, uh, blogs, exactly, exactly, that this kind YouTube of YouTube and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that designers have an obligation to inspire and communicate about social change? Yes, I do. I mean, some of them are um, better at it than others, and it has to come from personal conviction. It's no point just doing it because you feel you should. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mistake sometimes that students make. But um, if, if there's something that comes from inside that you feel passionate about, and most people have that, mm-hmm. then sure, that should be the number one thing. <laughs> Alice, we have a caller on the line. Uh, we have Suzanne from New York. Suzanne, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Alice. Hello. Um, I've been reading a lot about the, the sort of conflict between blogs versus like mainstream and traditional media. And since you're a writer, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, I think you might be referring to the debate that's been going on on, on Speak Up blog um, and print magazine. Is that the one you're referring to particularly, or do you just mean... Nothing, no, not, not specifically. Just I've been reading a lot about mm-hmm. it over the past several months. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I'm very excited about the potential of blogs. I think that... Um, the format that they provide this is an entirely new format of a, sh- a short form essay in combination with responses is, is very, very interesting. But obviously, I think as anyone who reads them or participates in them, they have their shortcomings. And uh, one thing I'm really excited about doing through this design criticism M- MFA program is to, to set the students to work to, to really try and um, help evolve this genre. It, it's, it's not an either-or situation with print in, in my um, from my point of view, it's just something that needs to be, um, the t- time needs to be spent building it and growing it, um, but, but it's a certainly an exciting start. Well, what are your views? My views, I, I think that um, 
I think sometimes people take blogs a little bit too seriously, not knowing who, how, where they originate from. And I think that's yeah. a little bit of a danger, but mm. um, overall I think it's a really nice outlet for people to express themselves. Well, I think you just, just defined that very, very well indeed, this idea of being an outlet, or as some people on blogs describe it as a community for discussion, and I think they perform remarkable function in that sense. I have to say, though, I, I really do enjoy the experience of writing for a magazine and working with a, a really good editor in, in a kind of context where, where there is the time to evolve a piece um, and, and what, yeah, really work with another mind to, to produce something that's better than something I could have produced by myself. So I still think that uh, traditional you know, print formats having, have um, incredible strengths. Okay, thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. It's really interesting what's going on on Speak Up right now. Mm. I, I've been very hesitant to um, stick my toe into that one, mostly because I write for both print mm -hmm. and Speak Up, so I don't feel that um, my opinion is really going to be worth very much. Um, but as somebody that does both blog, as you do, and writes for uh, printed media, do you, do you have a, a sense of why there is so much animosity going on right now between the two camps? I'm not actually sure. Um, I, I don't really understand the animosity. My, my experience to date of both the New York design community and the New York writing community is that it's an incredibly generous and, and you know, generous-spirited atmosphere in which mm -hmm. to work. This seems uncharacteristic to me, this particular debate that's going on. And I should point out that I'm actually a, a complete rookie blogger. I've, I've not... Um, experience in this at all. It's, it's an area I haven't really got into until very, very recently. Um, I would certainly read them. I find, mm -hmm. them, find them incredibly interesting and useful resources um, to test the temperature uh -huh. yes. uh, of, of, you know, a design idea at any moment. First place to go is, is, is the blogs, definitely. Um, but, um, but yeah, this, this animosity is, is, is intriguing, what's going on right now. And uh, <laughs> I think that when anything new happens, Alice, um, there is enormous resistance to, I'm just thinking back 20 years to the legibility wars, mm -hmm. you know, and we look back on it now and it's almost laughable, you mm -hmm. know, to talk about. But I think these things are necessary. I think they're necessary mm -hmm. to keep people honest, to keep people authentic, to challenge the ideas that we take for granted or that we need to explore further. I agree that that's, that's the one good thing to have come out of this debate is, is the, um, the challenge to complacency. Because mm -hmm. um, sometimes I do feel there are some writers um, that I've read on, on Speak Up that, and I think this was some of uh, Rick's points were quite valid in that case, where um, it, they, their writing would definitely benefit from a little more research, and I think that was part of his point. Um, and I think they know that too. It's just a different. Yeah. It's a different space. Absolutely. And that's what they were trying to point out back to Rick. So, um, but anyway, I, I think that the very fact that the debate, debate is happening is exactly what needs to happen, and that's going to move everything forward. So. Also, when it, when a new medium comes along, mm. it never starts out perfect. Well, no. Um, and I think that blogs certainly have a long way to go before they're even really quite good. But I think that they're an important contribution to what is possible mm. in, in the world of, of any community. Mm -hmm. Because I think it does bring people together in a, in a way that uh, other forms of media don't. And that's the part that I'm finding most enjoyable, is to be able to meet new people and hear new ideas 
where uh, you otherwise might not be able to. I, I agree. I, I think a comparable situation is, is at a conference where you've got a, got a situation that allows for real discussion. Um, and I think the only benefit the conference has over the blog is that the moderator can actually take the mic away. <laughs> and now I'm being told that our mics have to be taken away as we go to break. But we'll be back very shortly. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely Alice Twemlo. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow of Design Agency Resonate. Paul, when you're creating a brand for a client, the worlds you can create can become quite complex. Tell us about that. A specific example there is a promo we recently did for The Triangle, which is a new sci-fi series. Typically, those spots are pure imagination and pure complexity. In this case, it's a, The Triangle. It's this kind of fictionalized place where planes, boats, and people disappear. To create that kind of uh, mysterious world, we created all the components as layers uh, using After Effects. I'm talking about a layer app that uh, is 150 layers deep where uh, everything, every component from uh, lightning to waves to ships and 3D clouds and the rain are all rendered from the same scene as separate components. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Paul Sidlow talks about the future of design. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building in New York City, you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is design critic, educator, and author, Alice Twemlow. Our phone lines are open. If you'd like to speak with Alice, you can call 1-866-472-5790. And we do indeed have a caller, Alice. We have Gregory on the line. Gregory, thanks for calling hi, Design Matters. Hi, hi, Debbie. Hi, Alice. Hello. Um, I, have, I have a question about um, your students. Um, aside from the required reading um, they have, do you ever encourage them to read, for example, especially since you come from this background, um, classical English literature. Are you referring to the students that will be enrolling in the design criticism? Yes, would you encourage them? Oh, absolutely. I, I think this would be a, a really interesting um, place for students to turn to. Because it's something so uh, removed and, a, and just a viewer for their experience that 
Um, I think it would just, it, it's a world so alien to them, it, it could well just inspire them. <laughs> Well, it may not be so alien if they're coming from, from backgrounds, humanities or liberal arts-based backgrounds. This, in, this in fact, may be their, their sort of lineage so far. Um, I think you're referring more to perhaps if designers are coming into the program. Yes, that, that is. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, I No, am. it's fine. It's fine. Just to clarify. Um, yeah, and again, you know, doesn't mean to say that the designers aren't incredibly, or if not better read than, than the English literature, literature majors. So, you know, they may well have a background in that too. But, but we will definitely be emphasizing um, the, the kind of ways in which de, um, design has been discussed in fiction, I think is a really interesting thing to look out for one. Also, of course, we, we can't ignore the fact that literary criticism is the dominant genre of, within criticism. And um, if we're going to learn from any other field, that's, that's one of the places we're going to have to look. Um, I think you know, it's interesting to look at other f areas too, like film criticism perhaps, and I don't know, um, criticism of food and, and restaurants maybe too, but obviously literary criticism is, is the first place that we'll be turning. So it's going to be a really core cool component of this program for sure. Well, I, I'm so glad there are people like you um out there to help them along and encourage them and inspire them. Oh, that's very kind of you to say so. Thank no, you. <laughs> Thank you, Gregory. Um, Gregory, I think, brings up a, an interesting topic, Alice, and that is the role of criticism mm -hmm. in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about that a little bit? What do you think the role of criticism is in not only in any discipline but just in general in our society, the role of the critic? Absolutely. Well, I think there are two things. Um, first of all, with, with this program, we want to be teaching students um, to give them all the tools they need, and these are kind of, this is historical knowledge, um, theoretical models, um, and, it, and kind of intellectual tools like how to research, all those tools that they can, they can use to, to analyze and chronicle design itself. That's design objects, environments, and systems. But also, and this is what I think is more important, um, we want to, to be able to give them the opportunity to use design as a lens to look through at society, to be able to critique society through design. And I think that's where things get really interesting. Yeah, what do you think that would tell people? Well, it, <laughs> it depends on, on what you turn that lens towards. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously, you know, um, people have different ideas of what the critic is. And um, some people think that it's... Um, I, I was just at a conference recently, and Diane Sujic, the... Um, um, director of the Design Museum in London defined a critic as someone who tries to put a stop to things, which I thought was mm -hmm. interesting. Um, and so, you know, th there's a kind of, um, there's a role it plays as a sort of gatekeeper in society in some sense, or, or certainly pointing out the ills of society. But there's also a more positive um, take on it, which is a more productive role, which is to sort of show um, point examples for the future um, and and, and point to things which are good already and mm -hmm. to celebrate those. Um, so, so it really depends on the individual critic and where, where they're looking at society. They might find some good things there. You never know. <laughs> so do you, do you feel that the critic tries to put, I mean, I can't imagine that you would, but the, the, the idea that a critic puts a, tries to put a stop to things is a terribly per pessimistic thing. That sounds like it came from somebody that was critiqued badly. <laughs> <laughs> well, in his case, no. I mean, he's, he is a, an incredibly good design critic himself. He's to write for The Observer. And um, I, I think probably... Um, what, what this is referring to is, is um, yeah, the critic's um, social responsibility, and, and I think he's just using that. Criticism um, can be seen um, as a kind of left, coming from a leftist camp, and, and being in opposition to um, the, the sort of the main 
um, drive of society. And, um, and I think in that case, sometimes, yeah, you do have to try and put a stop to a lot of things. And, and I think that's what he's referring to there. Now, um, what, why do you think there's been such a lack of design criticism in our culture? That you're, this is the first design criticism F MFA program in the country. Mm -hmm. Why is that? That's a good question. I hadn't thought of it like that. I, I was surprised, you know, myself um, to discover um, that there hasn't been a program so far. I think it's, um, I think it's mainly because it's a fairly ad hoc discipline as it stands. And it's also a fairly young discipline it's in fairly relation young. to so many other artistic endeavors. That's, that's exactly true. Um, uh, yeah, design history is, is only really about 20 or, or 30 years old um, as a discipline. And so... Design criticism, uh, in some respects, kind of grows from that. Um, and, yeah, and what, uh, this idea of it being ad hoc, it, it's strange. I think it's to do with the, the subject matter that it deals with. Um, people are obviously getting more and more interested in design as, as a subject matter. Um, but yet, because it's so ubiquitous, because it's so u universal, um, somehow it's seen not to be worthy of critical attention by, by some people. Interesting. Well, and that's, that's a possibility. And so... Um, that, that could be to do with it. Um, but I think it's high time. <laughs> I do too. I'm so thrilled that you're doing something like this. As I was telling you during the break, I'd love to get an MFA in design criticism. What an incredible, incredible uh, dearth of information. Well, it, we of course, we'd love to have you as a student, but we'd prefer to have you as a teacher. Debbie, so. <laughs> okay. well, we have two calls holding for you. Okay. We have two callers. We have Andrew. Andrew, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Alice. Hi, Debbie. Hello. Uh, my question is about the, the MFA program, and um, as far as academics go, what do you think are the strengths that you can have by getting the MFA versus just going straight into design and getting that research under your belt? Hmm. Um, well, yeah, you can certainly um, teach yourself a lot in terms of research, but through this program, students will be coming into contact with, with some of the best practitioners in the field. I think that goes with, you know, out saying that this amazing faculty we're going to have involved with this program. And there's a lot to be said from having the opportunity to spend two years to really refine, enhance, and, and work at your practice as a writer and a thinker, uh, um, as a critical mind. Um, it's not something I think a designer just out there by themselves will be able to allow themselves in the day-to-day -day, um, hectic pace of working in a studio. So coming to the program for two years to, to encounter these experiences, the, the critical texts, and these teachers that we're going to have involved, and of course the other students, that's the other, that's the other great um, benefit of working in an MFA program. Those are just some of the things that I think will really um, elevate that, those research skills more than you could do by yourself. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for calling, Andrew. Um, a question about the, the the type of thesis that these students will mm. be doing. Uh, what kind of thesis projects would you see coming out of a program like this? Well, I think this is the interesting part about this program. It, I mean, writing lies at the core of it, for sure. Um, we'll be doing a lot of writing, a lot of editing, a lot of working in different um, media through writing and blogs will be one of those which we discussed earlier um, but we're also really excited that um, the, the critics um, that come out of this program 
will be interested in working in other formats too. And by that, I think a radio program is a great example, oh. <laughs> which is um, one way in which you can exercise, um, you know, your, your critical vision. Another would be an exhibition. We're, we're going to have a class on, on how... So curating. Yeah, exactly, how to curate. Um, and websites, um, books. Conferences, uh, yeah. like that. Yeah, actually, I think a conference too is, is a really interesting format in which... Um, which you, you can you can put criticism into action. So yeah, I, lots and lots of formats, and maybe students will suggest their own as well. Things right. we haven't thought of yet. Um, perhaps some kind of documentary might be something they'd be interested in making. So we want to provide them with all the facilities to, to make these these things for sure. Before we go to break, I want to take our next caller, Isabel. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi Debbie. Hi Alice. Hello. Um, I understand that your husband is a writer, and I wonder, do you collaborate together? And if so, what's it like? Ah, yes, he is. He's actually um, on a plane on his way to Japan at the moment. Uh, oh. <laughs> so that's quite interesting. On a, so we're, our collaboration has been rent asunder momentarily. But, um, uh, yes, we do collaborate on uh, a few projects. Um, one in particular is um, a kind of magazine on the Adobe website called Think Tank, uh, which is about the intersection between design and technology. Um, my husband, he's called David Womack, um, really specializes in writing about design and technology. That's a special area. And I'm m- obviously much more focused on design. So in terms of content, w- things meet up very nicely. The real pleasure of working together with another writer, and especially my husband, who's a brilliant editor, is, is that exchange that happens between writing and editing. And we, we work on each other's work a lot like that. Um, it's, it's one of the most kind of rewarding experiences I, I can imagine. It's really great. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you for calling Isabel. So um, do you ever argue about writing? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. He's... Um, He's much more, he's much better journalist than I am, much pithier and kind of gets straight to the point. I tend to ramble around a lot. Um, so that's, those are the kind of arguments we have when, when he sort of will cross out my entire first page of his own article. <laughs> <laughs> it's very upsetting, but he's usually right. <laughs> that's really wonderful. So, so you're putting together this MFA program. You do this project for Adobe. You also do quite a lot of your own writing. Mm-hmm. And you're also going for your PhD. Ah, uh, yeah. We have yet to talk about that. <laughs> Um, tell me a little bit about that, the, the, about this pursuit of, of this degree that you're going for. Um, well, I'll tell you how it, how it um, came about. And it was whilst I was writing an article for iMagazine about um, ornament and decoration. And I was so enjoying myself writing that article. It was already 6,000 words, but I barely scraped the surface. Oh, my goodness. And at that point, that's when I knew I needed to get deeper into something. And, and I wanted to go back to, to um, a situation in which I could really... Um, you know, refine my own writing practice because I found that I was using the same tools and the same kind of approaches as I'd learned on my MA, um, which is <clears throat> several years ago. <laughs> so, um, so that was the kind of the impetus. And um, funnily enough, a bit of a theme here, it's, um, it's on design criticism. I'm looking at design criticism um, since the 1950s um, in the U.S. and the U.K., um, my big inspiration here is is a writer like Rainer Bannum, who is um, a British architectural um, critic and design critic, um, who moved to the States in the, in the 1970s. So um, he is one of my absolute favourite writers about design. If you haven't already no, no. read any of his work, I encourage you to read everything he ever wrote. He's an absolutely remarkable writer at elucidating the everyday. 
So that was the inspiration. Wonderful. Well, we have to take a break. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about that. And then I also want to talk about your book. We haven't really spoken too much about your book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is design critic, educator, author, and student, Alice Twemlow. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Paul Sidlow of Design Agency Resonate. Paul, where do you see technology taking us in terms of design? I think that we're kind of reaching that, that point in time where we have this tremendous opportunity to uh, and responsibility to use these tools to create wonder and create free energy. Free energy is this ability to have an idea and I, I connect and I'm enabled to get any kind of information frictionlessly, perfectly presented in a way that is easily understood. Simplicity is uh, one of the, the greatest final destinations of great design. If you can simplify it to one thing, then, it, then it's a phenomenally functional piece of art in terms of how it functions around point in time. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. 200 years ago, Lewis and Clark discovered the West. That is, if you don't count the millions of American Indians who discovered it first. Because Lewis and Clark left one civilization only to find dozens of others that, despite everything, are still here today. Walk with Lewis and Clark at lewisandclark200.org and see what you discover, because their trail winds through us all. This is a public service message of the National Council of the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, the Missouri Historical Society, and the Ad Council. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is design critic, educator, and author, Alice Twemlow. Alice, right before the break, we were talking about your getting your Ph.D., mm-hmm. and uh, you were talking about how you uh, were first inspired to, to pursue uh, the degree by the article that you were writing on decoration and ornamentation, mm. and that's a really big trend right now in graphic design in general. Um, how do you think that came back so fast and so furiously? I'm not sure how fast it came back, actually, but, yeah, it was furious when it came, for sure, and, and so were some of the responses to it. Um, yeah, it was very intriguing to observe, and that's something yes. I, I'm doing all the time is, is trying to sort of figure out where we are in, in, in any kind of um, trend or situation within sort of focus of interest in graphic design. And I couldn't help but notice, you know, that this uh, these kind of lush tendrils and, and decorative foliage were invading every kind of page and screen I was looking at mm-hmm. for a while. Yes. I think it probably was at a surface level, a, a kind of backlash uh, at an aesthetic level against the kind of neo-modernist trend that had preceded it, this systems-based approach to design in which 
you know, you, you, you write a program and, and your computer designs your, your, your work for you. Mm-hmm. And so this was a, a, um, a situation where designers could really sort of express themselves more, more directly and um, in a more kind of uh, poetic way, probably. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it sort of seems to be fading somewhat now, but, mm-hmm. um, but certainly when I was writing about it, it was, it was um, a crescendo. And um, I just found that I think it was, it's to do with what I was talking about earlier, this idea of opportunities for designers to introduce complexity into their work and, and to um, use the decoration and the ornament not as, a, as an afterthought, as it used to be thought of, I think, but as something very integral. Mm-hmm. something that grew from the very seed of the project and that contained narrative and contained, um, you know, all, ki- all kinds of messages. And, and that was the kind of aspects of the decorative work I was most interested in. Now, let's go back to um, talking about your book. I only have you for a few more minutes, mm. and I read your book for the second time this past week and, and loved it even more the second time around. What is graphic design for? Essential, one of the essential design handbooks from Rotovision. Um, first of all, let's talk about the title. <laughs> what is graphic design for? One of the wonderful things about the book is, aside from the extremely good case studies, the wonderful historical information that you provide, are um, the quotes throughout the book mm-hmm. of various designers um, answering the question, what is graphic design for? But how did you come upon the title? Why did you decide to go about the book in this way? Well, I certainly didn't come up with that title. In fact, when it was told to me on the phone, I asked, well, what about gra- what is graphic design 1, 2, and 3? Um, so <laughs> I was very bemused about the question at first. Um, but I really, really, it was a good challenge for me, and I really had to wrap my head around it. Um, I came up with the approach that I would ask, skew the question slightly and come up with the answer that graphic design is for people, is for communicating with people. I'm very, very interested in the, the relationships designers have with their audiences, their specific audiences, and not what the client tells them their audiences are, but what they actually find out about their audiences and, and that, that dialogue and the extent to which they get involved the extent to which they, they incorporate information um, that they've gleaned from discussions with those people in the actual fabric of the work. Um, and I, I was really searching for examples of that, that kind of activity. So that, that became my framing device for the whole book then um, and, and really helped when I was selecting people from the, for the portfolio section at the back. Um, I was always looking for people who, who connected or seemed to want to engage somehow in a richer way with, with the communities in which they worked mm-hmm. and, and that, that really, really helped me. Uh, and, and then you referred to the fact that uh, I had to sort of ask some other designers to help me out with this question. You know, I wanted to get different perspectives. Yeah, that's part there. of the, I think, wondrous and magical aspect of the book is that they're all answering the same question and they're all such interesting answers mm-hmm. and they're rich and diverse and contradictory and similar and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, this, it, it's so um, rich is probably the best word that I can come up with to describe the, the level of engagement that the book has with the reader. Um, tell me how local differences impacted answers and the kind of uh, work that you picked for the book. Mm, that, that's a key question, I think, of the, of the whole book. Obviously, when you're looking at communities, immediately that opens up the issue of, of locality. And Obviously, designers are practicing today in, a, in an incredibly globalized um, world and or globalized economy. And there's the danger that their work begins to start to look the same wherever you are in the world. 
um, in some areas this is si uh, seen as a sign of kind of uh, professional design conduct, but to me it just looks boring. And um, I'm really looking for examples of where you can actually see if a piece of work was actually made in a particular place, if you can actually tell that by looking at, at the work itself. Um, and I, f I find that an interesting exercise um, to go through. It didn't always work, you know. Um, so sometimes... Um, Sometimes it, you really do feel like work speaks from a very particular place, and I think some of the examples I've used in the book are someone like Paula Cher, I think, whose whose work you know seems to sort of really speak of the streets and the oh, grid absolutely. of New York, very so, New York, so much. But um, I also what I uncovered was that there was um, another strand or area of work which is incredibly localized in in its production. So uh, an example would be Jop van Bennekom's Re magazine, which is a magazine I absolutely adore. Um, produced out of Amsterdam and it's about um, really really specific subject matter in one instance it's um, a sales representative called Marcel a 44 and it's, and it's all about his dietary habits so an entire issue is devoted to him you can't really get more local than that and yet this magazine has this kind of following um, a kind of a shared sensibility that that's that's international mm -hmm. and so that that was really interesting to sort of um, pick up on and realize that it doesn't actually have to be, it's, it's not as simple as a dichotomy between globalization and regional specificity. That there's something else going on here as well that connects um, design sensibilities across the world. Well, I found it very interesting, Dimitri Jerison of BASE, he had said in the book that there's a certain type of shop or hotel in which you will not know what city you're in. Mm, exactly. And I, find, I, I found it incredibly disorienting going to a place like Tokyo and seeing a Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel that the world, in, in, in our attempts for globalization and for a shared community of sorts, that we've lost a lot of the local flavor mm -hmm. of what has made uh, diversity so Absolutely. important. Um, well, I think it, uh, Base is a good example of a firm. I mean, obviously, he's, he's attuned to these, these um, issues because they originated in Belgium, but now they have um, design firms in, in multiple cities, I think up to five now, Madrid, Paris, New York, and so on. Um, and so he, he's having to, to balance the, these, these two impulses of being um, a kind of international design company, but trying to work on projects at a very local level in each of those places. And I think it works remarkably well in their, in their case. Yes. Um, in fact, I think all the... Many, I was thinking earlier today, you know, many of the design firms I'm actually drawn to um, are the ones that have an interesting kind of transatlantic or international experience and a kind of the new vision that you gain through being an immigrant in a place. Mm -hmm. um, and, and another example would be a design firm like Coma, um, mm, one of my favorite designers. Wonderful firm. Uh, and they're based here in New York but also in Amsterdam. And I think there's something that comes from that that feeding from the kind of um, European sensibility, but then putting it to work in a, in a kind of the, the energetic atmosphere of New York. Yes. Uh, and there's something very special about that. Well, Alice, unfortunately, we've come to oh. the end of the broadcast. Um, for my listeners, please, please read What is Graphic Design mm. For by Alice Twemlow. It's a wonderful and inspiring book. If you are looking to go back to school, I suggest you call the School of Visual Arts immediately and get as much information as you can about Alice's new MFA program. I really want to thank you for being on the show, Alice. I think that you are helping to expand the notion of what graphic designers can do, of what is possible by our practices, 
and I think that you have helped expand the role that we have as communicators. So thank you for that. Oh, I appreciate that, Debbie. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'd also like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, my executive producer, Brian Travis at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon and Sterling. Joining me next week on Design Matters, Ariane Wilker and Hidalgo Carlson, partners at Carlson Wilker. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of...